of Shadows, 1945. Chapter 14. The following morning, Fermin came to earth borne on the wings of Cupid, smiling and whistling Boloris. In any other circumstance, I would have inquired about his outing with Bernardo, but that day I was not in the mood for his poetic outbursts. My father had arranged to have an order of books delivered to Professor Javier Velasquez at 11 o'clock in his study at the university. The very mention of the professor made Fermin wince, so I offered to take the books myself. That sorry specimen is nothing but a corrupt pendant, a fascist buttock polisher, Fermin declared, raising his fist and striking the pose he's reserved for his avenging moods. He uses the pitiful excuse of his professorship to seduce women. I swear he would even have to have offered Gertrude Stein given the chance. Calm down, Fermin. Velasquez pays wells, always in advance, and besides, he recommends us to everyone, my father said. That's money stained with the blood of innocent virgins, Fermin protested. For the life of God, I hereby swear that I have never lain with an underaged woman, and not for the lack of inclination or opportunities. Bear in mind that what you see today is but a shadow of my former self, but there was a time when I cut as a dashing as figure as they come. Yet even then, just to be on the safe side, or if I sensed that a girl might be an overly flightly, I would not proceed without seeing some form of identification, or, failing that, a written paternal authorization. One has to maintain certain moral standards. My father rolled his eyes. It's pointless arguing with you, Fermin. Well, if I'm right, I'm right. Sensing a debate brewing, I picked up the parcel which I had prepared the night before. A couple of Rilkes and a apocryphal essay attributed to a disciple of Darwin, claiming that Spaniards came from a more evolved simian ancestor than their French neighbors. As the door closed behind me, for me and my father were deep in an argument about ethics. It was a magnificent day. The sky were electric blue and a crystal breeze carried the cool scent of autumn and the sea. I will always prefer Barcelona in October. It is when the spirit of the city seems to stroll most proudly through the streets, and you feel all the wiser after drinking water from the old fountain in Canaletas, which, for once, does not taste of chlorine. I was walking along briskly, dodging bootblacks, pen pushers returning from their mid-morning coffee, lottery vendors, and a whole ballet of street sweepers who seemed intent on polishing the streets, using their rooms like paint pushers, unhurriedly and with a pointlessness strokes. Barcelona was already beginning to fill up with cars in those days, and when I reached the traffic lights at the crossing with Calle Balmas, I noticed a brigade of grey office clerks in grey raincoats staring hungrily at a blood-rudd Studebaker sedan as they would ogle a music hall siren in a negligee. I went up the Balmas towards Gran Villa, negotiating traffic lights, cars, and even motorcycles with sidecars. In a shop window, I saw a Phillips poster announcing the arrival of a new messiah, the TV set. Some predicted that this particular contraption was going to change our lives forever, and turn us all into creatures of the future, like the Americans. Fermín Romero de Torres, always up to date with the state-of-the-art technology, had already prophesied a grimmer outcome. Television, my dear Daniel, is the Antichrist, and I can assure you that after only three or four generations, people will no longer even know how to fart in their own. Humans will return to living in caves, to medieval savagery, and to a general state of imbecility that slugs overcame back in the prehistoric era. Our world will not die as a result of the bomb, as the papers say. It will die of laughter and banality, of making a joke of everything and a lousy joke at that. Professor Velasquez's office was on the second floor of the literature faculty in Plaza Universidad. At the end of the gallery paved with hypnotic chessboard tiling and wash and powdery light that spilled down onto the southern closet tier. I found the professor at the door of a lecture room, pretending to be listening to a female student while considering her spectacular figure. She wore a dark red suit that drew attention to her waistline and revealed classically proportioned calves covered in a fine silk stocking. 
Professor Velasquez enjoyed a reputation as Don Juan. There were those who considered that the sentimental education of a respectable young lady was never complete without a proverbial weekend in some small hotel in Cite's Promenade, reciting Alexandrine's Tete a Tete with a distinguished academic. My commercial instincts advised me against interrupting his conversation, so I decided to kill time by undressing the pupil in my mind. Perhaps the risk walk had raised my spirits, or perhaps it was just my age. Not to mention the fact that I spent more time among muses that were trapped in pages of old books than in the company of girls of flesh and bone, who always seemed to me beings of far lower order than Clara Barcelo. Whatever the reason, as I catalogued each and every detail of her enticing and exquisitely clad anatomy, which I could see only from the back but in which my mind had already visualized in its full glory, I felt a vaguely wolfish shiver run down my spine. Why? Here is Daniel, cried Professor Velasquez. Thank good that it's you and not the madman who came last time, the one with a name like a bullfighter. He seemed drunk to me, or certifiable. He had the nerve to ask me whether I knew the etymology of the word prick in a sarcastic tone that was quite out of place. Uh, it's just the doctor that has put him on some strong medication, something to do with his liver. Uh, no doubt because he's smashed all day, said Velasquez. If I were you, I'd call the police. I bet you have his file. And God, how his feet stank. There are lots of shitty leftists on the loose who haven't been in a bathtub since the Republic fell. I was about to come up with some other plausible excuse for me when the student who had been talking to Professor Velasquez turned around, and it was the world that stopped spinning. I saw her smile at me, and my ears went up in flames. Hello, Daniel, said Beatriz Aguilar. I nodded at her, tongue-tied. I realized I'd been drooling over my best friend's sister, Bea, the one woman I was completely terrified of. Oh, so you know each other? asked Velasquez, intrigued. Daniel's an old friend of the family, Bayo explained, and the only one who ever had the courage to tell me my, my face that I'm stuck up in vain. Velasquez looked at me with astonishment. That was years ago, I explained, and I didn't mean it. Well, I'm still waiting for an apology. Velasquez laughed heartily and took the parcel from my hands. I think I'm in the way here, he said, opening it. Ah, wonderful. Listen, Daniel, tell your father I'm looking for a book called Morslayer. Early Reminiscences of the Generalissimo in the Moroccan War by Francisco Franco Bejamonde, with a prologue and notes by Piman. Considering it done, we'll let you know in a couple of weeks. I'll take your word for it, and I'll be off. 32 blanks minds await for me. Professor Velasquez winked at me and disappeared into the lecture room. I didn't know where to look. Listen, Bea, about that insult, I promise I... I was only teasing you, Daniel. That was the most childish nonsense. And besides, Thomas gave you a good enough beating. It still hurts. Bea's smiles looked peace offering, or at least an offering of a truce. Besides, you were right, I'm a bit of a stuck-up sometimes and a little vain, she said. You don't like me much, do you, Daniel? The question took me completely by surprise. Disarmed, I realized how easily you can lose all animosity towards someone you've deemed your enemy as soon as the person stops behaving as such. No, that's not true. Thomas says it's not you that don't like, it's that you can't stand my father and you make me pay for it, because you don't dare face up to him. I don't blame you, no one dares cross my father. I felt the blood drain from my cheeks, but after a few seconds, I found myself smiling and nodding. Anyone would say Thomas knows me better than I know myself. I wouldn't put it past him. My brother's all of us inside and out. Only he never says anything. But if he ever decides to open his mouth, the whole world will collapse. He's very fond of you, you know. I raised my shoulders and looked down. He's always talking about you, and about your father and the bookshop, and this friend you have working with you. Thomas says he's a genius waiting to be discovered. Sometimes, it's as if he considers you his real family instead of the one he has at home. My eyes met hers, hard, frank, fearless. I did not know what to say, so I just smiled. I felt she was ensnaring me with her honesty, and I looked down at the courtyard. I didn't know you studied here. It's my first year. Literature? 
My father thinks science is not for the weaker sex. Of course, too many numbers. I don't care because what I like is reading. Besides, you meet interesting people here. Like Professor Velasquez? Vea gave me a wry smile. I might be in my first year, but I know enough to see him coming, Daniel. Especially men of his sort. I wonder what sort I was. Besides, Professor Velasquez is a good friend of my father's. They both belong to the Society of the, for the Protection and Promotion of Spanish Operetta. I tried to look impressed. A noble calling. And how's your boyfriend, Lieutenant Cascos Buendia? Her smile left her. Pablo will be here on leave in three weeks. You must be happy. Very. He's a great guy. Though I can imagine what you must think of him. I doubt it. I thought Bea watched me. Looking slightly tense. I was about to change the subject, but my tongue got ahead of me. Thomas says you're getting married, and you're going off to live in Inferol. She nodded without blinking. As soon as Pablo finishes his military service, you must be feeling impatient, I said, sensing a spiteful note in my voice and an insolent tone that came from God knows where. I don't mind, really. His family has property out there, a couple of shipyards, and Pablo is going to be in charge of one of them. He has a great talent for leadership. It shows. Bea forced a smile. Besides, I've seen quite enough of Barcelona after all these years. Her eyes looked tired and sad. I hear El Farol is a fascinating place, full of life, and the seafood is supposed to be fabulous, especially the spider crabs. Bea sighed, shaking her head. She looked as if she wanted to cry with anger, but was too proud. Instead, she laughed calmly. After ten years, you still enjoy insulting me, don't you, Daniel? Go on, then. Don't hold back. It's my fault for thinking that perhaps we could be friends, or pretend to be. But I suppose I'm not as good as my brother. I'm sorry I've wasted your time. She turned around and started walking down the corridor that led to the library. I saw her move away along the black and white tiles, her shadow crawling through the curtains of light that fell from the gallery windows. Bea, wait! I cursed myself and ran after her. I stopped her halfway down the corridor, grabbing her by the arm. She threw me a burning look. I'm sorry, but you're wrong. It's not your fault, it's mine. I'm the one who isn't good at your, as your brother, and I've insulted you, and it's because I'm jealous of the idiot boyfriend of yours, and because I'm angry to think that someone like you would follow him all the way to El Farol. It might as well be the Congo. Daniel. You're wrong about me, because we can be friends, if you let me try, and you know how worthless I am. And you're wrong about Barcelona, too, because you may think you've seen everything, but I can guarantee that's not true. If you'll allow me, I can prove it to you. I saw a smile light up and slow, silent tear fall down her cheek. You better be right, she said, because if you're not, I'll tell my brother and he'll pull your head off like a stopper. I held out my hand to her. That sounds fair. Friends? She offered me hers. What time do your classes finish on Friday? I asked. She hesitated for a moment. At five. I'll be waiting for you in the cloister at five o'clock sharp. And before dark, I'll prove to you that there's something in Barcelona you haven't seen yet, and that you can't go off to El Ferrol with a dot idiot. I don't believe you love him. If you go, the memory of the city will pursue you, and you'll die of sadness. You seem very sure of yourself, Daniel. I, who have never even sure what the time was, nodded with a conviction of ignorance. I stood there watching her walk away down that endless corridor until her silhouette blended with darkness. I asked myself what on earth I had done. The Fortuny hat shop, or what was left of it, languished at the foot of a narrow, miserable-looking building, blackened by soot in Ronda de San Antonio next to Plaza de Goya. You could still read the letters engraved on the filthy window, and a sign in the shape of a bowler hat still hung above the shop front. Promising designs made the measure at the least novelties from Paris. The door was secured with a padlock that had been at least a decade undisturbed service. I pressed my forehead against the glass, trying to peek into the murky interior. If you've come about the rental, you're late spat a voice behind my back. The manager has already left. The woman who was speaking to me must have been about 60 and more the national costume of all Puesa widows. A couple of rollers stuck out under the pink scarf that covered her hair, and her padded slippers matched her flesh-colored knee-high stockings. 
I assume she was the caretaker of the building. Is the shop for rent? Isn't that why you've come? Not really, but you never know. I might be interested. The caretaker frowned, debating whether to grant me the benefit of the doubt. I slipped in my trademark angelic smile. How long has the shop been closed? For a good 12 years since the old man died. Signor Fortuni? Did you know him? I've been here for 48 years, young man. So perhaps you also knew Signor Fortuni's son. Julian? Well, of course. I took the burned photograph out of my pocket and showed it to her. Do you think you'd be able to tell me whether the young man in the photograph is Julian Sarax? The caretaker looked at me rather suspiciously. She took the photograph and stared at him. Do you recognize him? Sarax was his mother's maiden name. The caretaker explained in a disapproving tone. This is Julian, yes. I remember him being very fair, but here, in the photograph, his hair looks darker. Could you tell me who the girl is? And who is asking? I'm sorry, my name is Daniel Semperic. I'm trying to find out about Signor Sarax, about Julian. Julian went to Paris, around about 1918 or 1919. His father wanted to shove him in the army, you see. I think the mother took him with her so that he could escape from all that. Poor kid. Signor Fortuny was left alone, in the attic apartment. Do you know when Julian returned to Barcelona? The character looked at me, but didn't speak for a while. Don't you know? Julian died that same year in Paris. Excuse me? I said Julian passed away in Paris, soon after he got there. He would have done better joining the army. May I ask how you know that? How do you think? Because his father told me. I nodded slowly. I see. Did he say what he died of? Quite frankly, the old man never gave me any details. Once, not long after Julian left, a letter arrived for him, and when I mentioned it to his father, he told me his son had died, and if anything else came for him, I should throw it away. Why are you looking at me like that? Signor Fortuny lied to you. Julian didn't die in 1919. Say that again? Julian lived in Paris until at least 1935, and then he returned to Barcelona. The caretaker's face lit up. So Julian is here in Barcelona? Where? I nodded again, hoping she would encourage to tell more. Holy Mary, what a wonderful news. Well, if he's still alive, that is. He was such a sweet child. A bit strange and given to daydreaming. That's true, but there was something about him that won you over. He wouldn't have been much of a good soldier. You could tell that a mile off. My Isabelita really liked him. Imagine, for a while, I even thought they'd end up getting married. Kid stuff. May I see that photograph again? I handed the photo back to her. The cake ticker gazed at it as if it were a lucky charm. I returned the ticket to your youth. It's strange, you know. It's as if he were right here right now. And that mean old bastard saying he was dead. I must say, I wonder why God sent some people into this world, and what happened to Julian in Paris. I'm sure he got rich. I always thought Julian would be wealthy one day. Not exactly. He became a writer. He wrote stories? Something like that. For the radio? Oh, how lovely. Well, it doesn't surprise me, you know. As a child, he used to tell the stories to the local kids. In the summer, sometimes Isabelita and her cousins would go up to the roof terrace at night and listen to him. They said he never told the same story twice. But it's true they were all about dead people and ghosts. As I say, he was a bit of an odd child. Although, with a father like that, the odd thing was that he wasn't completely nuts. I'm not surprised that his wife left him in the end, because he was a nasty piece of work. Listen, I never meddle in people's affairs. Everything is fine by me. But that man wasn't a good person. In a block apartment, nothing secret in the end. He beat her, you know. You always heard screams coming from their apartment, and more than once the police had to come around. I can understand that sometimes a husband has to beat his wife to get her to respect him. I'm not saying they shouldn't. There's a lot of tarts about. And young girls are not about to be brought up the way they used to be. But this one, well, he liked to beat her for the hell of it. If you see what I mean. The only friend that poor woman had was a young girl, Vicenteta, who lived in 402. Sometimes the poor woman would take shelter in Vicenteta's apartment, 
to get away from her husband's beatings, and she told her things. What sort of things? The caretaker took a confidential matter, raising an eyebrow and glancing sideways right and left. Look, the boy wasn't hit, the Hatters. Julian? Do you mean Julian wasn't the Fortuny's son? That was the Frenchwoman told Visiteta. I don't know whether it was out of spite or heaven knows why. The girl told me years later when it didn't live here anymore. So who was Julian's real father? The Frenchwoman never said. Perhaps she didn't even know, you know, what the foreigners are like. And do you think that's why her husband beat her? Goodness knows. Three times they had to take her to the hospital. Three times. And the swine had the nerve to tell everybody that she was one to blame. That she was drunk and was always falling about the house from drinking so much. But I don't believe that. He quarreled with all the neighbors. Once he even went to the police to report my lace husband, God rest his soul, for stealing from his shop. As far as he was concerned, anyone from the south was a layabout and a thief. The pig. Did you recognize the girl who's next to Julian in the photograph? The caretaker concentrated on the image once again. Never seen her there before. Very pretty, though. From the picture, it looks like they were a couple, I suggested, trying to jog her memory. She handed it back to me, shaking her head. I don't know anything about photographs. As far as I know, Julian never had a girlfriend. But I imagine that if he did, he wouldn't have told me. It was hard enough finding out that my Isabelita had gotten involved with that fellow. You, young people, never say anything. And us old folks don't know how to stop talking. Do you remember his friends? Anyone special who came around? The caretaker shrugged her shoulders. Well, it was such a long time ago. Besides, in the last years, Julian was hardly ever here, you see. He'd made a friend at school, a boy from a very good family. The Aldeas now. That's saying something. Nobody talks about them, but in those days, it was like mentioning the royal family. Lots of money. I know because sometimes they would be sent a car to fetch Julian. You'd have seen that car. Not even Franco would have one like that. With a chauffeur and all shiny. My Paco, who knew about cars, told me it was a Rolls Royce, or something like that. Fit for an emperor. Do you remember the friend's first name? Listen, with a surname like Aldea, there's no need for first names. I also remember another boy, a bit of a scatterbrain, called Miguel. I think he was also a classmate, but don't ask me for his surname what he looked like. We seemed to have reached the dead end, and I feared that the caretaker would start losing interest. I decided to follow a hunch. Is anyone living in the Fortuny apartment now? No, the old man died without leaving a will, and his wife, as far as I know, is still in Buenos Aires, and didn't even come back for the funeral. Can't blame her. Why Buenos Aires? Because she couldn't find anywhere further away, I guess. She left everything in the hands of a lawyer and a very strange man. I've never seen him, but my daughter Isbelita, who lives on the fifth floor, right underneath, says that sometimes, since he has the key, he comes at night and spends hours walking around the apartment and then leaves. Once she said that she could even hear what sounded like a woman's high heels. What can I say? Maybe there were stilts, I suggested. She looked at me blankly. Obviously, this was a serious subject for the caretaker. And nobody else has visited the apartment in all these years? Once this very creepy individual came along, one of those people who never stopped smiling, a giggler, but you could see him coming a mile off. He said he was a crime squad. He wanted to see the apartment. Did you say why? The caretaker shook her head. Do you remember his name? Inspector something or other. I didn't even believe he was a policeman. The whole thing stank. Do you know what I mean? It smelled of something personal. I sent him packing and told him I didn't have the keys to the apartment, and if he wanted anything, he could call the lawyer. He said he'd come back, but I haven't seen him around here again. Good riddance. You wouldn't by any chance have the name of the address of the lawyer, would you? You asked the manager of this building, Sr. Melones. His office is quite close, number 28, Florida Balanca. First floor. Tell him I sent you, Sr. Aurora, at your service. I'm very grateful. So tell me, Dona Aurora, is the Fortuny apartment empty then? No, not empty, because nobody has taken anything from it in all these years since the old man died. Sometimes it even smells. I'd say there are rats in the apartment, make my words. 
Do you think it would be possible to have a look? We might find something that tells us about what really happened to Julian. Oh no, I couldn't do that. You must talk to Sir Milonis. He's the one in charge. I smiled at her mischievously. But you must have a master key, I imagine. Even if you told the man you didn't, don't tell me you're not dying to see what's in there. Dona Aurora looked at me out of the corner of her eye. You're a devil.